0: This is episode 18 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Tuesday, January 11, 2022. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at AngryTechNews.com. Now your host, the Angry Programmer with a mic, Brian Benrose. I'm posting this a bit late today as we had to deal with a minor flood just outside the house due to an excess of snowmelt, rainwater, and maple leaves all trying to enter a storm drain at the same time. Fortunately, the flood wasn't inside, but that was a completely different story from a few years ago. When the chapters feature of the Podcasting 2.0 podcast namespace was finalized, there were a dearth of tools available for podcasters to create the JSON files needed for the feature. Not all of us podcasters have an army of producers eager to jump into an iOS-only app and build the chapters file for us, though for Angry Tech News, I assume it's only a matter of time. So to fill the gap, I wrote a quick and dirty PowerShell script that uses a Windows Forms UI straight out of 1996 to create a grid of text boxes to be filled in with chapter data, which will ultimately be turned into a properly formatted JSON file. When other podcasters found out what I had done, they too wanted a way to emit a properly formatted chapters JSON. So I shared the script. Now, to be clear, I wrote the script for me. PowerShell is my native environment on Windows machines, displacing even the start menu. But for most users, I may as well be asking them to launch a supercomputing cluster as launch a PowerShell script. Microsoft has made it about the most user unfriendly scripting engine in the world to use, especially if you're trying to share scripts. Well, Now I know that at least one person is using it. Twelve months after writing it, someone filed a bug today, and it was a nice one. The short version of the bug is that every one of the PowerShell native methods of outputting text emits a byte order marker or BOM at the beginning of every written text file. You don't usually see or know about the BOM, especially on Windows, because every text viewer on Windows discards the marker and doesn't display it. The JSON specification RFC 7159 specifies that J- properly formatted JSON is UTF-8 encoded and must not contain a bomb, but recommends that any reader apps be able to discard a bomb if it's found. Clearly, there are app JSON libraries out there that don't follow that recommendation, because by emitting a JSON file with a bomb attached, I managed to blow up the apps that tried to consume those chapter files. Pun intended, though poorly executed. And if you didn't understand any of that technical gobbledygook, then you're probably a normal non-programmer who doesn't need or want to know about all this stuff. Let's just say that if you, you do use my PowerShell script, I have published a bug fix. Of course, the real fix the program needs is to scrap the whole thing and rewrite it in a language that isn't quite so resistant to being run. Maybe in another 12 months. From the electromagnetic wave shanty department. Radio Shack has hit the news again. The electronics brand name that will never die has been repurposed yet again. But first, a history lesson, because it's a transparent excuse for me to reminisce about my first computer. The original Radio Shack company was an electronics store founded in Boston in 1921. By the 1960s, the company was going bankrupt when they were bought in 1963 by Tandy Corporation, a Fort Worth leather supply company turned electronics retailer, under its second-generation CEO, Charles Tandy. In the early 1980s, Tandy Corp. entered the wild and burgeoning personal computer market with their line of IBM PC clones, the Tandy 1000 series. My first computer, purchased by my parents as a family computer in 1985, but pretty much immediately turning into my computer as the the only family member who understood it, was a Tandy 1000 HX, a custom Form Factor 8086 clone, With 128 kilobytes of RAM, no hard drive, 16 color TGA graphics, and not one, but two floppy disk drives labeled Drive A and Drive B. When you started the computer without a disk in the drive, it booted into MS-DOS version 2.11 from a read-only onboard ROM labeled Drive C. It also came with a program called Personal Deskmate, a software suite that I still think was ahead of its time, or at least amazing for its time. In addition to full-featured knockoffs of Lotus 1-2-3 and WordStar, it also had a calendar app, a database, a 16-color bitmap image drawing program, and a sound editor that could edit audio samples and adjust their pitch on a treble and bass staff to compose MIDI music, all of which was played out by modulating the internal PC speaker. Oh, and of course the DeskMate UI wasn't displayed entirely using ASCII text, so I was right at home. None of those fancy pixel graphics. Oh, the good old days. Alas, that was not meant to last. The PC market moved on past Tandy, who continued to sell random PC components in their Radio Shack stores for another decade before slowly fading into the niche of the place that electronic hobbyists go for obscure parts after trying every other store first. By 2000, the Tandy brand was unofficially dead, and that year Tandy officially changed its name to Radio Shack Corporation. In 2015, after 11 consecutive quarterly losses, Radio Shack filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection and sold off its assets. The Radio Shack brand name was sold to General Wireless IP Holdings of New York, who went bankrupt in 2017. Finally, to make a short story long, the Radio Shack name was purchased in November 2020 by Retail E-Commerce Ventures of Miami, who have decided, drumroll please, to turn Radio Shack into a cryptocurrency brand. According to the press release on RadioShack.com, the biggest problem with crypto is that people, boomers, don't trust it because crypto has no well known brands over even 15 years old, which is a true, if obvious statement, considering the decentralized blockchain was invented in 2008 by Satoshi Nakamoto. And so, the new owners of the RadioShack name have decided that the key to crypto success is establishing well known brands. To that end, they are entering RadioShack, a brand name which passed the century mark last year, into a brand new industry. They're hoping that people will see the brand to look past the fact that it's held by a shining new company with no history and invest your crypto coins in RadioShack, a brand you can trust. I, for one, wish them luck. From the cracking your own piggy bank department. Canon is having an unusual problem with their printer ink DRM. The leaders in desktop printer market have perfected a strategy as old as disposable razors. Sell a device for cheap and make it up with an obscene markup on a part that you have to keep paying for. But in the days of DRM, printer vendors can exhibit the kind of greed that razor blade hawkers of yore could only dream of. Build a printer and sell it cheap, then gouge the locked-in customer on ink. Boom, unlimited subscription model. The undisputed leader in this model is Hewlett-Packard, who literally require a subscription on several of their printers. Whenever you want to print, the HP printer phones home over the Internet to query whether your subscription is up to date, and if not, the printer becomes an expensive and bulky paperweight until you fork over more cash. But even without the Internet, printer makers have been locking users in by only allowing their own ink to work with the printer. And for just as long, clever users have been trying to use the devices they legally purchased without paying the exorbitant cost. At first, printers relied on specially fitted ink cartridges that used a custom interface or simply wouldn't physically fit into the wrong printer. Those were easily enough defeated by a competitor with a CNC machine or by an end user who figured out how to refill an official cartridge with off-brand ink from a bottle. Later, the makers started to label their cartridges with a serial number, the printer driver would keep a tally of which cartridges it had seen before and refuse to print if a cartridge was reused or didn't have an official company-issued number at all. But stickers and numbers can still be spoofed at home. What they needed was a method of injecting logic into the printing process that couldn't be viably repeated by their enemies, the end user. So, modern drm printer cartridges ship with full-blown microchips in the disposable ink container with read-only IDs, encryption keys, and non-volatile memory. The marketing pitch for doing this is that it allows you to monitor ink levels or to track bad cartridges in the unlikely event of a recall or some other thing that is completely orthogonal to the task of printing. But we all know the real reason is to make damn sure that if you print with their printer, you use only their ink. So this brings us back to Canon's current dilemma. The tech industry is currently suffering a microchip supply shortfall causing the price of chips to rise dramatically, well past the point where it's economically viable to waste them by putting them in disposable ink cartridges. So Canon is now shipping cartridges without chips to some customers. In order to ensure a continuous and reliable supply of consumables, we have decided to deliver consumables without semiconductor components until normal supply is restored. Included in their announcement is a set of instructions how to bypass the printer's DRM. According to Boing Boing, who translated the announcement from German, presumably where Canon is making this move, the instructions are straightforward disable the warnings about low ink sensors and invalid cartridges, and bypass several error messages to force the printer to print anyway. I suppose that this is even possible, proves that Canon is less evil than HP, the industry leader in customer abuse. Either that, or they're just not very good at it. Still, If you read German, own a Canon printer, and happen to find a copy of these instructions, and there's one linked in the show notes, you probably should save them for when microchip prices go back down. Oh, and while researching this story, I ran across an interesting article on some of the most expensive fluids when priced per gallon. Don't ask me why it's relevant, it was just stuck in my head. At nearly $3,000 per gallon, Black Printer Ink came in at number nine on the list, ahead of mercury, nail polish, and GHB roofies twice as expensive as human blood and 10 times as expensive as penicillin on the plus side printer ink is still significantly less expensive than medical grade insulin which currently goes for 10,000 per gallon and rising thanks O'Biden. biden insulin which was first used in medicine in 1922 yeah 100 years ago is still somehow under patent thanks to corrupted IP laws, allowing for a level of price gouging that printer companies could only dream of. Insulin, as a life-sustaining medication, also suffers from an inelastic demand curve, which means that demand doesn't really fall off as the price goes up. People will pay almost any price to get it, because if they don't have it, they will die. If you run out of printer ink, on the other hand, you may not be able to print out that latest Dilbert comic, but at least you won't die. Although I'm sure there are some office workers out there Who would disagree with me? From the Old News New Controversy Department. Norton 360, the all-invasive security suite from Norton LifeLock, previously known as Symantec, has yet found another way to drain your precious system resources. Having worked on Windows, I'll try to spare you the bulk of my rant about how third-party antivirus suites are the source of more system instability, degraded performance, and race condition bugs than the malware against which they ostensibly defend. Yes, antivirus was critically important in the early days of Windows 98 and XP when the operating system was wide open to malware and had no security solution of its own. Windows of that era was built when Bill Gates was still in denial about this whole internet thing, and the local network was a benign and trustworthy place. Windows 2000 even had a service, on by default of course, that would allow anyone on the network to send a packet that would remotely pop up a dialog box over the top of whatever you were doing on your desktop. That anybody could possibly abuse such a service was unthinkable to the naive designers of those operating systems. Oh, simpler times. But as the years moved on, Windows got more secure and more complicated, Microsoft listened to their corporate customers, the only users whose opinion they care about, and those customers wanted more security. As Windows got more and more difficult to infiltrate, third-party antivirus, which due to limitations in the official API, had to install themselves via the same type of kernel hooks used by rootkits and viruses, got more and more invasive, less and less useful, and caused so many adverse side effects in the operating system, they should be listed in VAERS. Suffice it to say, third-party antivirus is a technical solution to a situation that started as a small but real problem and then got blown out of proportion by an extensive marketing campaign of fear, propaganda, doubt, and blind panic driven by greedy corporations and willfully ignorant end-users. Not unlike another product rolled out in the last 12 months and pushed hard, I might add. So yeah, I know I'm going to get pushed back for this opinion by people who have years of cultish adherence to their chosen antivirus deity. But for security under Windows, I still maintain all you really need is up-to-date Windows Defender, a moderately secure firewall and browser settings, and a modicum of self-control to keep from clicking on every email attachment that pops into your spam box. Okay, that rant out of the way. Norton 360 announced last year a new feature called Norton Crypto, which, as you can probably guess by the name, allows the software to mine cryptocurrency using your machine's resources. This neatly solves the problem, as Norton sees it, that even after the suite has done its 23rd full-system hard drive thrash of the day, there are often still CPU and memory resources available to the end user. A terrible situation that must be remedied. Okay, yeah, enough with the thick sarcasm. Norton Crypto rolled out quietly last July as an opt-in only service. If you want to hear my take on it last June, listen to episode 165 of Grumpy Old Ben's in which my co-host Darren O'Neill introduced the story and I completely failed to grasp its importance. The feature started receiving attention this week when Boing Boing co-founder Corey Doctorow tweeted about it, apparently having just noticed, causing the expected panicked freakouts on social media and in security circles. As with any social media mass panic, there's a lot of FUD around the feature. Many people are claiming that Norton Crypto is on by default, a claim that I could not verify and that Norton LifeLock denies. According to their fact, the feature must be explicitly enabled and can be disabled through their dashboard, although the Norton support forums have multiple user reports that the service can't be disabled once enabled or that it reinstalls itself after being uninstalled. But even going only by the features fact and statements the company has made, there is plenty to be concerned about. Which cryptocurrencies are currently supported by Norton Crypto? <clears throat> Norton Crypto supports Ethereum crypto mining. Will I be able to adjust the settings thresholds or will Norton decide that? For now, Norton will manage the settings. So once you turn it on, it decides how to manage your precious resources. Yay! Do I need an Ethereum wallet to mine with Norton Crypto or will Norton create one? Norton creates a secure digital Ethereum wallet for each user. The key to the wallet is encrypted and stored securely in the cloud. Because we all know that everything in the cloud is automatically secure. Oh, and you thought you'd be able to deposit that Ethereum into your olden wallet? Yeah, hold on to your hats. What platforms can I transfer the crypto to? Norton Crypto supports transfers of Ethereum from your digital wallet to Coinbase. Coinbase. That's it. No alternatives. There's a button on your Norton dashboard to transfer to Coinbase. Don't like Coinbase? Screw you. No coins for you. Norton will keep them. Sweet deal for Coinbase. Are there charges or fees associated with the coin mining? Norton crypto is included as part of Norton 360. Why do they always start with an irrelevant statement? However, there are coin mining fees as well as transaction costs to transfer Ethereum. The coin mining fee is currently 15% of the crypto allocated to the miner. And there's the VIG. Norton 360 uses up your computer, burns your electricity that you are paying for, keeps the generated coins in its own personal account accessible only through one exchange, and for the privilege, they keep 15% of the proceeds. In a security suite, no less, which should not be installing new internet-enabled services, opening ports, and transferring data behind your back. Not if they give a crap about security, anyway. And of course, I'd be amiss if I didn't address the standard environmental argument against proof-of-work currencies like Ethereum. I am pretty far from a greenie, but they do bring up the valid point that mining crypto uses a ton of electricity, which has to be generated at a power plant. Green energy like wind and solar are great for virtue signaling, but rubbish for power generation. So that power likely came from hydro nuclear or fossil fuels. And the U.S. doesn't have enough hydro and nuclear to cover all its power needs, so that narrows it down. When a modern GPU or CPU goes idle, it spins down into a very low power mode within milliseconds. Unused cycles do not mean wasted energy. It literally cuts down the amount of power it uses to a trickle. On the contrary, cycles spent performing proof-of-work mining use a lot of energy. So if you're concerned about conservation, this should concern you. So there you have it. If you want to mine Ethereum with your spare GPU cycles, there are several reputable sites and software packages that are not integrated with your security suite and which don't charge a full 15% just for the privilege of using your computer to do it. In fact, if you want to mine Ethereum, why don't you send me an email at ryan at and I'll hook you up with a couple of open source tutorials to do it yourself. I'm feeling generous, so I'll only charge you 10% of everything you ever mine. Yeah. Thank you to Brennan Kidwell and Raymond Zorger for producing this episode of Angry Tech News. Angry Tech News is released on the value-for-value value model. We don't take sponsors, we don't play advertisements, and we don't charge you to listen. But we are funded by your donations. If you got value out of listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to AngryTechNews.com and click the Donate button to make a one-time or recurring donation. Send whatever you think this show has been worth to you, whether it be $10, $50, or $1,000. That's it for me. My name is Ryan Bemrose, the Angry Programmer. I'll be back next week with more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the Angry Programmer, Ryan Bemrose at AngryTechNews.com. Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay angry.